and welcome to the Medical Republic. I'm Ruby Prosser-Scully and I'm joined with Dr. Jonathan Rogers of the University College London. Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks, it's great to be with you. So you've recently published a paper in The Lancet Psychiatry about the neuropsychiatric complications of coronavirus infections. Now, coronavirus is something that we think of as a respiratory virus. So why would coronaviruses cause psychiatric symptoms? That's a great point. Um, And to be honest, um, we don't know the answer 100%. Coronaviruses have been around for a long time and they account for about 15% of the common cold. And in some very rare cases, usually in people who are already immunosuppressed, and they have been known to invade the brain and cause meningitis and encephalitis, but it's very, very rare. As to why the current outbreak might be causing neurological and psychiatric consequences, well, there are a few possibilities. Firstly, you'll have heard about the idea of anosmia, the, the lack of the, the loss of sense of smell caused by COVID-19. And some people think that's due to invasion of the olfactory bulb, the bit of nerve that sticks out at the top of our nose. But other people think it might just be because of nasal congestion. Once the uh, virus invades the olfactory bulb, it's possible that uh, it can spread to the rest of the brain. And indeed, there's in vitro evidence, that is, in a lab, that the the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, can replicate inside neurons. But it's all experimental. We don't have the data in humans. The next possibility is actually it's the treatment that we're giving. Um, so uh, there are a few cases of uh, psychosis in, p- in patients with SARS, and that was actually due largely to the corticosteroids they were given. The other possibility is that it's, um, it's having a severe illness. We know that any severe illness can cause delirium. And of course, we mustn't forget that the psychological consequences of uh, having COVID-19 as well. And um being isolated from friends and family, being in intensive care, etc. That's so interesting. So to find out a bit more, you and your colleagues have done a meta-analysis and a systematic review of three and a half thousand people across 65,000 peer-reviewed studies and seven preprints. What kind of things did you find happen in the short term? So in the short term, the real standout finding was that 20 to 30% of patients um, who experienced SARS and MERS, which are the previous outbreaks of coronavirus, experienced symptoms like insomnia, confusion, really variable mood, disorientation. And altogether, these make up a, a syndrome called delirium. The next question is, is it similar in COVID-19? And we've got some early evidence that, yes, it is. And about 20% of patients who were admitted to hospital with COVID developed delirium. Apart from delirium, as I mentioned, there are a few patients, about 1% of patients with SARS who developed psychosis acutely. These were all patients who've been prescribed corticosteroids, which is much less common with COVID-19, but is still being trialled in one or two um, RCTs. But it was interesting that... um, in the studies that reported on this, it looks like having a family history of psychiatric disorder actually predicted developing psychosis on uh, corticosteroids. So there may be other factors at play there. Okay. And with delirium, um, now is that associated, is that sort of something that just resolves on its own or, um, I mean, should we be worried about that? Yeah. So it's a really good question about the seriousness of delirium because it is a, a transient disorder and you might think, well, well, why do we care about it? 
there are three reasons why, as a, as a practicing psychiatrist in a general hospital, I I feel um, quite passionately about delirium. Firstly, is that delirium is associated with um, a much greater mortality um, of patients who are admitted to hospital. Secondly, um, delirium results in a longer hospital admission, on average about seven days. And in the midst of a pandemic, we need all the hospital beds we can get. So if we have patients stuck in hospital with delirium, that's going to cause real problems. And thirdly, patients who have dementia and develop delirium in hospital tend not to get back to their cognitive baseline. So if they were able to function at a particular level before they went, went into hospital, they have delirium, there might be a step change in their abilities after leaving hospital. And so then, you know, what did you find happened over the longer term in the people that were in the study? Yeah, so this was, again, very interesting. About 15% of people who had SARS and MERS, and when you followed them up at a, a, at a, a follow-up period of at least several months, often going up to a few years, about 15% of them had anxiety or depression. Now, with, with, with anxiety and depression, obviously, they're, they're fairly common in the general population. And these are high rates, but not super high. What was much more interesting was that more than 30% had PTSD at follow-up. And that's a really huge rate. The other thing we found was that about 20% of patients had persistent fatigue. Um, and this was at several, several months after they'd supposedly recovered from SARS or MERS. And anecdotally, from my clinical practice, I'm hearing that a number of people who've had COVID-19 are experiencing something similar. And how much do you think of this as the result of the virus and how much is to do with the sort of, you know, the trauma of the experience of being sick and being in ICU? Yeah, it's a really good question. We know that being in ITU is traumatising in itself. Um, and there's this idea of a, a post-ITU syndrome. PTSD following being in ITU is is common. I think that there are a couple of things that are different about this current pandemic. Firstly is the scale of it. Um, so we've never had as many people in ITU before. There are lots of otherwise fairly fit and healthy people who are in ITU who would never normally be in ITU. And secondly, because this is an effective outbreak, there are a number of things that make the whole experience just that little bit more traumatising. So normally the things in ITU that can make your stay um, a bit bearable, like having a loved one come in and sit with you and hold your hand for hours, or having um, a dedicated nurse um, who you get to know a little bit over several days, or being able to recognise people. These are all very different, very different and very difficult now because we have to place serious limitations on who can visit patients in hospital. Often you can't recognise nurses and doctors because we all look the same and it's hard to develop that rapport with your patient because you're interacting with them often through three pieces of plastic. Did any of this come as a shock? Did any of the findings sort of surprise you? Yes, the the fatigue was really quite interesting. Um, the depression and anxiety, we thought, we were kind of expecting that. But to have persistent fatigue for several months in about a fifth of patients after you supposedly recovered was quite interesting. And we also looked at some of the uh, qualitative findings of patients who had a uh, 
COVID. And that's where, sorry, not COVID, but uh, patients who had SARS. And that's where researchers sat down with them and asked them what their experiences were. And they said that they had good care initially, but actually in the months following so-called recovery, they'd go to these hospital clinics and they'd say they're still getting all these symptoms and they wouldn't be believed. And that I thought was quite poignant because we, we've geared ourselves up as a society to deal with this um, acute pandemic, but actually it's quite possible that there'll be longer term consequences. And if we've got fatigue in 20% of people who are going to hospital with COVID, I think that has massive implications for getting people back to work and restarting our economies. It's hard to imagine just how much that's going to affect a lot of societies. I mean, Australia on the whole has sort of, I guess, dodged the uh, the worst possible scenario, but in places like the UK and the US and many other countries, you know, the numbers are much, much higher and we've already copped such a big hit to our economies by doing these lockdown measures in the first place. So that's um something very concerning to be looking out for in the future. Absolutely. Um, and lots of, lots of these things will will compound together. So as you say, we've got the lockdown, we're already going to have a hit to our economies. So if you're fatigued following a COVID infection, you've lost your job, you're going to be competing for fewer jobs. And, and a lot of the ways in which I encourage people to cope as a practicing psychiatrist are very difficult to do now. So I'm always encouraging people in my clinical practice to get out of the house, meet people, exercise, and if you've got a job, if possible, stay in it. And if you haven't got a job, try to get one. And all these things are going to be much harder immediately post-COVID. Being in employment is just so important for your mental health because it gives you a routine, it's your structure to your day, and it gives you some purpose and sense of meaning in your life as well. And what kind of things can doctors, our audience's general practitioners, what kind of things can they be doing to sort of help this transition back to normalcy? Yeah, great question. So I think acutely we need to be uh, screening for delirium and uh, recognising it and then treating it. There are some good evidence-based treatments for delirium. Secondly, in terms of the longer term consequences, we need to be aware of what's going on, but we need to be really careful that we don't do things that make the situation worse. There are some interventions like, for example, psychological debriefing where you take a person who's had a traumatizing experience, sit them down with a psychologist for an hour and talk through in real depth what's happened and how it's made them feel. This sounds intuitively like a great idea, but actually rather counterintuitively, it's been shown not to help reduce rates of PTSD and might even make people more likely to experience PTSD. Um, so anything we do needs to be evidence-based. I think when we're following patients up for post-ITU, post-hospital admission for COVID, obviously we're going to be asking them about respiratory symptoms, so shortness of breath, cough, are you, are you coughing anything up? How far are you able to walk? What's your exercise tolerance? But I think we also need to be asking people about their mental health. Um, how are you coping with getting over this? How's your mood? Is there anything you're worried about? Are you getting any really nasty dreams or flashbacks about this? And are these kind of things going to affect people with more milder cases of uh, COVID-19 or are these sort of uh, a bit more reserved for people who have been, you know, hospitalised with the disease? 
So this is an important question. I don't think it's one that anyone actually knows the answer to now. Um, all the evidence we have from prior coronavirus outbreaks is from SARS and MERS, where pretty much everyone was admitted to hospital. Even the current case series we have from COVID, um, most of the recruitment has been done again from hospitals. We would expect and, and hope that the um, both the immediate and the long-term psychological consequences of having a mild form of COVID are much less severe than those with, with a severe form. And I think the headline message is that despite COVID being a really nasty illness and some people developing these horrid side effects, the majority of people won't have a mental illness. It's just something we need to be aware of. You know, a lot of the research in this was based on on the previous two outbreaks. Um, are there any other reasons why COVID, the outcomes from COVID might look a little bit different? Yes, I think the scale of it is, is obviously massively different. So SARS and MERS were severe and scary, but they were really quite localised. Um, they affected 2,000 and 8,000 people. Because COVID has affected so many people, I think there will be a number of different outcomes. So during the SARS outbreak, a number of patients who'd actually recovered reported experiencing a lot of stigma around their illness. And this was months after their acute illness. They were still saying that friends and family members, even colleagues at work, didn't want to be near them because of fear of catching the disease. Now, I hope that that will be somewhat better with COVID because so many people have had it, actually. I think there probably will be less stigma around it. I think other possible differences, though, are a little bit less encouraging in that as so many people are going to be out of work, there'll be that competition for jobs. On the other hand, I think it's reasonable to think that people have pulled together during this time. Um, and we know that actually during times of national crisis, suicides tend to go down. So during the Second World War, suicides plummeted. And there are lots of possible reasons for that. But I think it's reasonable to think that um, part of that, at least, is that there's a national purpose. We're all pulling together um, and everyone has a role to play. Let's hope so. Um, and now, would there be anything about the, the, the way the virus actually affects the biology that could cause for different um, effects between what we've seen with SARS and MERS? Yeah, so... Um, SARS was caused by the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. MERS was caused by the, the MERS-CoV. And uh, COVID-19 is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, which is much more similar to SARS than it is to MERS. It seems to be less lethal than SARS, but um, more uh, that seems to be more effective. There is some early evidence in the laboratory that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, might be more likely to replicate inside neurons and spread between neurons. But it's very early evidence, and I don't think we've got uh, anything conclusive to say on that at the moment. I think there may well be some uh, rare but quite um, important neurological consequences. So, for example, uh, COVID-19 seems to increase the coagulability of your blood. That is, it makes you more likely to clot. So there have been a number of cases of people developing strokes while infected with uh, COVID. And then I think it's possible that we'll see um, 
some other rare but quite significant um, neurological effects of the virus. Um, so encephalitis, where the virus infects the brain itself, or meningitis, where it affects the, the lining of the brain. I think these will, will be uncommon, but I think for the individuals that have them, they'll obviously be very significant. And are you now following this up? Uh, do you have any more studies that are underway looking at the long-term effects of COVID-19? Yes, I think this is really important because we found with the SARS and MERS studies um, that actually our conclusions were a bit limited because the quality of the studies wasn't particularly good. So our priority now is getting a study up and running which has um, which follows people up um, three months, six months and 12 months after the uh, initial illness, but crucially compares them to a group of patients who have been admitted to hospital that didn't have COVID-19. Because the, the point you made, Ruby, about is this specific to COVID or is this just related to being in hospital with a nasty illness is really important. And we need to be able to untease that. Okay. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you thought was important to add? I think one interesting finding in the paper was that there were several groups which seemed to be at higher risk of developing um, mental illness after SARS and MERS. And it may well be similar in COVID-19. So one group that are particularly vulnerable are those people who already have a pre-existing mental illness. Um, they seem to be particularly vulnerable of having um, PTSD, depression and anxiety after experiencing a coronavirus infection. Another group which is perhaps a little bit less expected is uh, people who are infected who are healthcare workers themselves. Um, and there are lots of possible reasons why that might be. Maybe there was some survivor guilt. Um, maybe if people felt guilty that they weren't helping um, with the effort against the virus as they could have been. Um, but I think those two groups are, are people in, in whom we need to be really aware that they might have uh, psychiatric consequences of COVID and be following them up. Is there anything that we can do to prevent any of these kind of uh, effects from happening? I mean, you've mentioned that, you know, having good support um, and in general having uh, work and friends and family around are, you know, quite helpful. But, uh, you know, if we sort of can see this on the horizon to an extent, is there anything we can do ahead of time? Yeah, so I think we need to be making every effort possible to ensure that people aren't isolated while they're in hospital. So having really consistent staffing so you get to know the person you're, uh, who's caring for you. Um, having video links to family as absolute standard. Making sure that every patient each day is able to Skype or call their family in some way. I think in the longer term, it's about taking care of your own mental health. So that means um, engaging those coping strategies that you were using before, whether for that, whether for you that's exercise, whether for you that's reading, music, whatever, um, and trying to move on from this experience. We found that the people who were more likely to develop PTSD were those individuals who were more likely to ruminate and go over the experience over and over again. Um, some processing might be helpful, but actually... Um, it's really important to move on and get back to what you were doing before. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Pleasure. It's delightful to be with you. Thanks. 
This is Ruby Prosser-Scully and you've been listening to the Medical Republic's podcast. Mm-hmm.